You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axecamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. Real quick before the sermon starts, I wanted to apologize. This sermon's audio quality is not as it usually is. We had some technical difficulties and had to go to a backup recording on the cameras, which is never the optimal way to capture audio, but hopefully you're able to understand it. All right, here's the sermon. This is Rooted Part 3 on 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2. Dear Brian and Mary, Mom and Dad, You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God. John Chapel, November 16th, 2018. There's a tribe of people on an island called North Sentinel Island. It's in the Bay of Bengal, uh, about a thousand miles from India. These people are essentially living isolated. From the whole world, nobody, they don't have any modern technology, basically nobody goes out there. The government of India has basically said, you can't come within five kilometers of this island. We don't want people to maybe catch a disease and get sick, but we also want to protect their culture, one of the last cultures of that kind that has basically no influence from the world. And this Friday, not this past Friday, but the Friday before, on the 16th, a man from Vancouver, from Salmon Creek area, wrote the letter that I just read, one that we just heard. He went after he wrote that letter from a fishing boat over to the island because he wanted to tell the people there about Jesus Christ. His heart was was sold out, was sold out to loving these people, these people who he didn't know, these people whose language he didn't speak, these people who had killed other people who had tried to come to this island who came into their territory. And he was afraid that he might die. But it was worth it to him. It was worth it to him for the chance to see those who did not know Jesus get saved. And so he went. He asked the fisherman who he had paid to take him over there to drop him off near the island. And I think he took a kayak or he swam the rest of the way. And he said, leave me here for the night. He had gone a couple of times just for just for a little bit, and had that kind of mixed, mixed reaction from the folks on the island. And he said, leave me here for the night, it'll be okay. The next morning when the fishermen came back and looked on shore, they saw what happened. John Chow's body was being dragged across the sand and being buried, being and apparently killed while trying to preach the gospel to these people. I love you all, he had written, and I pray that none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. He was 26 years old. But as I scrolled through his Instagram feed, I I got an impression of a a young man 
that have really lived. A, a young man whose life was full of joy, was, was full of friends. He was a traveler. He would go scuba diving. He was a soccer coach. He traveled the world. Uh, it was an adventure for him. Life was an adventure. Following Jesus Christ was an adventure. And John Chow did what so many had done before him. He followed his passion for Jesus Christ and his love for people to wherever it took him, wherever it was going to take him, no matter what the cost. In this case, it cost him his life. Now, I don't know, the story's not over for John Chow. Even though he is, as he says, passed through the veil to see his Lord and Savior, we don't know what the end will be. Maybe somebody else will go. Maybe the Senselese people that he was trying to reach will be reached with the gospel. Maybe they'll be introduced to Jesus. Maybe other people from his example of, of courage and boldness in the Lord will do the things that God's called them to do because they see what this young man had done. We don't know. We don't know what the end of this will be. We know that God will use all things together for good for those who love him. But we do know that our brother in Christ, John Chow, is now world famous. If you put his name in the internet, you'll find him all over the place, articles about what had happened. And the reason that he's famous is because he gave his life for the gospel. Some people like that, some people don't, but everybody's talking about it. So everybody at some level is talking about Jesus. He had a bigger impact in the world than he could ever have had with the maybe 50 to 100 people that lived on that island. And John is the kind of guy who we think about when we think about missionaries, right? Um, you know, the, these people who go and do things like this. But did you know that every single Christ follower, if you're a Christ follower, every single one of you is a missionary? And you go, well, okay, what is a missionary? Well, let's look at the dictionary definition. Dictionary.com, because I'm too lazy to use paper, uh, says a missionary, one, is a person sent by a church into an area to carry on evangelism or other activities as an educational or hospital. That's the one that we're used to, right? There's a missionary, they're kind of a professional missionary. They're, they're paid, they go to another country, they, they live there, they preach the gospel, and so on. Second one is a person strongly in favor of a program, set of principles, etc., who attempts to persuade or convert others. That can be really anybody, a salesman, a lawyer, you know, somebody who's really into something and tries to persuade other people. But the third one is a person who is sent on a mission. A person who is sent on a mission, and that one applies to every single person who was chosen to follow Christ. You've been sent on a mission. We've been sent on a mission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you know the passage well, we've read it many times. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. He says, go. Go. This is what Jesus has commanded. There's no ambiguity. He doesn't leave room. There's nothing for you to be confused about. He says, go. I've got the authority. It's been given to me. All the authority. I'm putting you out there. I'm putting my stamp on you. And I'm saying, go. You have a mission. You have something to accomplish on this earth. Go and make disciples. Don't sit there. Move. Make disciples for Christ. This is called the Great Commission. It's the mission every single Christ follower ever. Paul and Timothy and Silas, who we've been reading this letter from, they were living out their lives as missionaries, right? They were on a mission. They had traveled to the city of Thessalonica in the northern section of Greece, which is called Macedonia, 
and they had ministered there, and then they had had to leave because of persecution and, and some things that came up, and so now they're writing a letter back, and that's the letter, this epistle, um, word for letter, that we're reading to the Thessalonians. We begin last week to study and walk through Thessalonians, and this is a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to the people of Thessalonica. We're now in chapter 2. And if you have your Bible, if not, there should be some in the chairs behind you if you want one of those. They'll also be up on the screen, but if you want some paper in front of you, uh, go ahead and grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at home or you don't own one, feel free to take one of those Bibles in the back of the chair. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, so here we go. Verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. The first part of that is where I want to just stop for a second. For you yourselves know. Now, Paul's going to spend a decent amount of time in this whole letter saying things like this. You know this thing. You yourselves know. He's reminded them of what they've already been taught or what they've already seen of Paul and Timothy and Silas while they were there. He's reminding them, right? It's a normal thing in moral instruction in the ancient world to remind your readers or your hearers of what they already have learned, what they already know, what they already have remembered, right? And you understand it because y'all have kids, right, for those of you who do. And I can't think of anything past about the age of three that was new information that I had to tell them. Like, okay, no, you don't touch that either. They did. By the time they were this, it was all reminding, right? I told you not to do that. You know better than doing that. Right? You probably heard this or said this. You probably have never heard it, but you probably said this. Right? To somebody. You know better than that. Right? Remember what I told you? And my dad, the one who used all that, I told you once, I told you a thousand times. And he told me that. He didn't tell me the other things, but that he told me a thousand times. Right? We're called to remember the things that we were taught in Austin for some reason we actually do forget. For some reason, we forget. It's easy to forget. We come to church, the pastor talks for a while, sometimes for way too long, or at least that's what I've been told most of my kids. If, they, if they've told me once, they've told me a thousand times um, that it's too long. But we get a lot of information, right? There's a lot of information coming in to our heads and our hearts. We get a lot of instruction. So how do we remember what is important? How do we remember what is important? Repetition. Repetition. Paul here is saying, you know, you know. He'll see things like, you already know, or you remember as he goes through this. He's telling them, I've taught you this before, or you've seen this before, but what I'm telling you again. Now why? If they already know and they already remember, why say it again? Why say it to them again? Because repetition is important. You have to be reminded. You have to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the truth all the time if we want to live it. If you want to live in the truth, you have to be reminded of it all the time. Do you know how much less stressful and difficult my life would be if I would sometimes remember to stop and breathe and pray before I freak out? Just remember, right? Just if I could just remember how much anxiety and mental pain I would avoid if I could simply remember what I already know about how much Jesus Christ loves me about how, who I am in Him. If I could just remember, if I could just sit there before the stress comes, remember that I'm enough in Him. I don't need the approval of other people. All these things that we go through, that we walk through life, and, and later we're like, you know, I feel so bad that somebody's like, oh yeah, well, you already know. Remember, Jesus loves you. Remember, He cares about you. And you're like, oh yeah, I forget about that. 
time. Somehow, what it comes down to is we haven't done enough repetition, we don't remember. See, I know lots of things, I preach about them all the time, but I'll be honest, I don't always remember them when I need them most. When I need them most, so I have to have repetition. That's why we do things like reading through the scripture in a year. That's why we do all the things that we do, right? We have to have repetition, repetition. I have to go over it and over it. Have you ever played a sport? Or um, been a, like a play or played an instrument? You're very familiar with repetition, right? You've got to run those plays over and over again, right? You've got to practice that backhand, right, Randy? Tennis guy, that's right. That backhand over and over again. Why? Why do you have to practice it over and over again? Because when the other person hits it and that tennis ball is coming at 95 miles an hour, you don't have time to say, is the angle of my elbow in the right spot? It's gone by then, right? It's gone by then. If you want to be ready in the heat of the battle, you better have done your repetition beforehand, right? When you stay up till late at night, right? Practicing your scales on the piano or the guitar or whatever, or going over your lines for the play. You've got to re repetition, repetition, repetition. If you weren't remember, you got to get it in you. Why? So it becomes automatic. Automatic. Second nature. When that tennis ball comes in, it's boom. Right? You hit it back. You hit it right back. You just have to be able to react. And because you've practiced it so many times, you have so many repetitions, you're ready. You're ready when the battle is on. Now, of course, that assumes that your repetitions are quality. For instance, I have a lot of repetitions with the golf club, but most of those repetitions involve hitting the golf ball into the trees. So that's really what I've learned to do well, and I do that really well. Um, I mean, you just mean to feel good about yourself. It takes me to the golfing sometimes. So. <coughs> Thanks, right. Here we see the importance of bringing back to remembrance. Remembrance. That which they are. We need to constantly remember. We need to constantly have repetitions of the truth to be ready for the warfare, the spiritual warfare and the other things we face day to day. If you haven't done the repetitions, it's not coming back to your remembrance. If you're constantly in the Word, if you're constantly here on Sundays, if you're constantly at life group, men's group, women's group, recovery group, going with the church to Honduras, doing those things, you're constantly getting good teaching, you're constantly praying, you're constantly doing those things, repetition, 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 then when it gets hot, you're ready. Right? You're ready. But if you're constantly, if your repetition is primarily watching reruns of Parks and Rec, your spiritual readiness is weak. You're going to be fat and lazy spiritually. Right? And when the things come, and you're thinking, what did Ron Swanson say? Right? Some of you haven't seen that show. It's okay. He probably should. In any case, what you put your time into is what you're going to be ready for. So if you haven't done the repetitions, you can't expect to be ready when the things get hot, when the battle gets tough. Because you haven't done it. Remember when Jesus was facing the devil who came to tempt him. After Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, remember Jesus was all man. Okay? I go without eating for 40 minutes, and it's rough. Like by the time I get down from here, you usually see me going pretty fast. I'm headed for something to eat. Right? 50 minutes or whatever. No. It's tough. 40 days. So he's weak. Weak. And the devil comes after him. So the battle is on. Because he's all man, so he's got to deal with the physical limitations of his body. And Satan's coming, hey, why don't you make use of bread? And he's ready with scripture. Why? 
repetition, remembrance. He knew the word because he was in it, because he loved God, because he was God. Repetition, remembrance, and he was ready. When the battle got tough, what happened? Satan had to go. He had to flee. He couldn't, he couldn't hang with Jesus, even at Jesus, even when Jesus had become a man and fully man and was fully weak because he had repetition. Remember the power of God. Nothing can stand against it. That's true for you too. So you need to be ready. Young people, don't cozy up with your boyfriend or girlfriend on the couch with the lights out and put the movie on and expect that you're not going to do anything stupid. Remember. Remember the wisdom that you have been taught. Remember what the Lord has taught you. Use your brain. Repetition. Get in the Proverbs. This is what's good. This is what's good. Stay out of Solomon until after you're married. Adults, older people, when you get that bill in the mail and the number in your bank account is smaller than the number on that invoice that just came. Before you spiral, before you freak out, remember who you are in Christ. Remember that God loves you. Remember that he's brought you up to here and that he will surely take you to where he needs you to go. Remember those things. Don't get lost in the stress of life. Be ready when the battle is tough. Repetition equals remembrance. If you will, do the repetition in the Word, at church, with your friends, good counselors, life groups, all the things that need to be there. Prayer, meditation on the word, you'll remember. Repetition equals remembrance. And we need to do that. We need to do that. Okay, let's look at the next part of verse 1. It says, For you know, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Our coming to you was not in vain. Now, Paul seems to be beginning kind of a defense of sorts, right? This is, this is not what happened. This is, this is not what happened. This is not, this bad thing didn't happen. You're starting this defense, you'll see it as we walk through uh, chapter two, this first part of chapter two. You really see what looks like an apologetic, which is a defense of Paul's behavior and motives and things like that. And we're gonna see over these verses that's what's going on here, but some have wondered whether this is a defense or whether this is something else, right? Because we don't know that someone had actually accused Paul of anything specific. It doesn't say, we were accused of this, but this isn't true. Instead, we just sort of see this defense come out, we wonder. But if you remember, last, last week, if you were here, we studied uh, chapter 1, and we went back to Acts 17, when Paul and Silas, they were in Thessalonica, and they had to leave very quickly. The people didn't get that much teaching before they had to roll because the persecution was, was coming hot, and it would have been bad for the rest of the church and bad for Paul and Silas if they had not rolled out of Thessalonica. And I wonder if, to some extent, he feels like he needs to answer why he left so that people, some of whom might have felt somewhat abandoned, didn't feel like they weren't legit. They weren't serious about what they did. So that could be part of it. But the other part that's really going on here is Paul is, is taking this time, you'll see it more clearly, to make a distinction, a distinction between Paul and Silas and Timothy and the other missionaries. Now you may be asking, wait a second, I remember Acts 16, Acts 17, the church of Thessalonica. I don't remember there being any other missionaries there. It was Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? But there were. Remember I said to you earlier that every Christ follower is a missionary. But that doesn't mean that only Christ followers missionaries. Not only Christ followers or missionaries. Back then, there were all kinds of people who would come into town 
and preach the philosophy of this or that or the religion of this or that. They would try to sell their ideas, basically, and gain disciples. That would go on constantly. No TV, right? So that would go on constantly in the ancient world. But you should probably be recognizing the missionaries that exist in your world right now. There are actually many missionaries that exist in your world right now. And I'm talking about the nice Mormon boys with the ties and the bicycles that come to your house. Although they are missionaries. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about every single politician. Every company. Every documentary filmmaker. Every book writer. Every movie and showmaker. Everybody who's doing anything to put content out into the world is a missionary. They're on a mission to convert you to something. To something. They're trying to convert you to a voter, or convert you to their policies, or convert you to a buyer of their goods, or a believer in their philosophies. Whatever it is. Or just a consumer of their stuff. Whatever it is. All, all of them are missionaries. Not all of it's necessarily bad. All of you, in fact, have probably been missionaries for some things besides just Jesus, right? If you've been a salesperson, if that was your job, you were at some level a missionary. In that second definition we read earlier, right? You've tried to convert people into believing in your product so they would buy it. That's what you did as a salesperson. I've noticed there's a number of essential oil missionaries in the body. A number of $5 jewelry missionaries in the body, in our midst here. Or maybe let's say you have a sports team that you really like. Let's just say that your team went to the Apple Cup and won in the snow and cold. And you were going to the Pac-12 championship and the Cougars weren't. Let's just say that was going on. Maybe you want to convert some people into fans of the best team in the Northwest. I don't know. You know that? that may be, I'm just saying, you might be missionaries for some things, right? You're missionaries for things all the time. Most of them are relatively unimportant and they're neutral spiritually. Right? There's things we like to try to talk to people about. But sometimes we need to look closely at our missions. Because if you've spent more time in the last week trying to be, being a missionary for getting people to watch today's episode of This Is Us, you've spent more time on that than you have trying to tell people about Jesus Christ, then there may be a priority problem in your missions. If your primary mission that you have in life as a Christ follower is to follow Christ and make disciples for Him, but the thing you actually do more is all this other stuff, then there may be a problem. Not because there's anything wrong with you saying, I really like this show, whatever it is. I've never seen This Is Us, but I really like this show. You should watch it. It's really good. Not anything necessarily wrong with that, except if that's all you do. Except if that's all you do, right? But that time and this time, we've always had missionaries, right? The Apostle Paul was very aware of these other missionaries and what they were like and what their motives were like. He knew what their motives were like. And he was going to make a distinction between a Christ follower missionary and these missionaries were peddlers of false philosophies. False philosophies. So we read that their coming to the Thessalonians was not in vain. It was not a failure. It was not a failure. In the last chapter we read in verse 5, it said, uh, it, it did not come to Thessalonians in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Right? It wasn't vain. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. It was legit. And we're telling you that. Even though they faced persecution, even though they faced affliction, the gospel was not preached in vain. Even with all that affliction and persecution, it did not fail. Persecution had not stamped out the gospel in Thessalonica. It was not in vain. Right? Just like it has not stamped out the gospel in China 
or North Korea or any number of other places where they try to stamp out the gospel. Right? The gospel does not fail. The gospel does not fail. In the late 1800s, there was a guy named Robert Ingersoll. He was a lawyer. And this is what he said. He said, today the intelligence of the world denies the miraculous. Ignorance is the soil of the supernatural. The foundation of Christianity has crumbled, has disappeared, and the entire fabric must fall. The natural is true. The miraculous is false. Now you would think that a guy with that much certainty that Christianity was over this back in the late 1800s. Christianity's over in his mind, right? It's the people who are smart, they, they all know that it's not true, it's failed. The fabric has gone away. You think that by now, if he was right, every intelligent person would be laughing at Christianity right now, but here we are in 2018, and here we all are, right? The church is, is still strong. In fact, the intellectual tradition of Christianity is stronger or better now than it probably has ever been. There are believers, Christ followers, in the sciences and philosophy and most of the disciplines that are out there. They're in the laboratories, they're in the universities. This guy was wrong. He was wrong. He ridiculed and persecuted Christianity, saying that it was stupid and it would go away. But he was wrong about that. And why? Because the gospel will never fail. The people of Thessalonica couldn't get rid of it. And the people who have tried in our time to get rid of it can't get rid of it. For some reason, intelligent, thoughtful, loving, caring, just, moral people continue to be popping out of the church at, at, at big numbers all over the world, not just here. In fact, primarily all over the world. Because it's real. Because it's real. The gospel is not ever preached in vain. That's what Paul is saying here. The gospel does not fail. And no amount of ridicule or persecution will ever make it fail. Will ever make it fail. In the time that this epistle was written to the Thessalonians, there were lots of people who were coming, saying, hey, we've got the answers to life's questions. We can, just think of the title of any self-help book you can think of. They were basically selling that same book. Right? We can solve your problems. We have the ideas. We have the philosophies that can make you better. But their motives were not pure. It was about money, or it was about power, or it was about influence. It was about other things. And so what happens, they come in, they do this stuff, and then their philosophies would turn out to be nothing. It would be in vain. And so Paul's saying, ours was not in vain. He's making a distinction between himself and what they would have known of all these other philosophers and people who came into town peddling self-help and turning out to be nothing because their motives were impure. They were failures. They were failures. And here we see Paul making a distinction between the Christ follower missionary and these others. Our coming to you was not in vain. In verse 2, it says this. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Even after we had suffered, Right? Even after we suffered, we're spitefully treated. We were born in God, and we spoke the gospel to you. Now, in Acts chapter 16, you can go back and read what happened to Paul and Silas when they were in Philippi, right before they had come to Thessalonica. And basically what happened is they were stripped and beaten with rods and then put in prison into the inner prison. And there's a bunch more very cool stuff that happens 
in the rest of that story, you should, you should go back and read it or listen to the message that we did on Acts 16 um, and get some of that. It was very cool. But one of the things is, is that they were incredibly disrespected, shamed, embarrassed, really, really, really embarrassed by what happened. I mean, just imagine people just taking, you know, stripping your clothes off and beating the tar out of you with sticks in front of everybody. It's embarrassing. I don't know, it hasn't happened to me yet, but it, it's embarrassing. And here's the thing, many people are more concerned about being embarrassed in front of people than they are concerned about being physically injured. Many people would rather take a physical injury than be embarrassed in front of people. Jerry Seinfeld talks about the fact that the number one fear of people is public speaking, which is basically to say, the number one thing people are afraid of is public embarrassment, public speaking, right? He says the number two fear is death. So he said, basically, most people would rather be in the casket than give you the eulogy. Right? Because people are afraid of embarrassing themselves in public. In many cases, much more afraid than they are hurting themselves or being injured. For Paul and Silas, I don't know what was worse. The beating their body took or the embarrassment they had to face, the shame, the ridicule. It's tough. If you've ever been ridiculed, if you've ever dealt with embarrassment, you understand why people are afraid of it. It's a fearful thing. We don't want to be embarrassed. And we would make a mistake if we were not to take very seriously the part of this verse that's talking about being embarrassed, right? Spitefully treated, that's talking about being embarrassed. That's talking about the fact that they embarrassed them, that they insulted them. You've got to take that seriously because how many of us have let embarrassment or fear of other people keep us from sharing the gospel or standing up for what is right in different situations? I have. I've been. I've been in a situation where it's just like, maybe I feel like I should be saying something or doing something, but it's just, it, there's too much fear. Too much fear of how awkward that's going to be and how embarrassing it's going to be and so on. I hope that you haven't been there, but, but many of us have, right? And so we need to understand here how serious it is to be shamed in public and how serious it is that they push through that for the sake of these Thessalonians. They did not give up. They did not go home. They got beat down. They got horribly embarrassed. And they're like, we didn't leave. We didn't leave. We loved you so much that we came here to Thessalonica to do it all again, risking the same thing. That's how we were. That was our character. That's not something that comes from human strength, but as he said, from the power of God. From the power of God. That's where it comes from. Right? You can't do that. You can't be bold unless you're bold in God to face the kinds of things that Paul and Silas were facing. They said, that's what we did. We didn't do it in human strength. We were bold in God. So if you've ever pushed through, by the way, I think, I think we can reasonably imply here that if you've ever pushed through embarrassment, fear, so that you could speak the truth to somebody, so you could preach the gospel to somebody, and you push through that fear, then what you did in that moment was you were bold in God. It was God who actually gave you that boldness. You were actually there speaking the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, being bold in God. And that's pretty awesome. That's a pretty awesome thing that God will do that because as we go out as missionaries for God, we go out with the power of God in His Holy Spirit. And that's where they were. The Holy Spirit through Paul here is again making a case for the distinction, the distinction between the motives of the christ follower missionary and the other missionaries. The motives are different. The other missionaries are not pushing through public embarrassment, torture, and the rest of it so they can come 
and have all that happen again. He's saying, look, these other guys want your money. These other guys want your influence. They want other stuff from you. They want to make a big deal of themselves. They're, but their failures, their, their, their gospel, their, their truth that they're trying to push is, is in vain. And we follow Christ. We do this as, as missionaries for a totally different reason than they do. The Christ follower the missionary will risk life, like Jonathan Chapman, will risk physical health, and embarrassment, and whatever else it is, to bring you the gospel. Because Christ's follower is bold in God. This is about the character of the one bringing the message. The character of the missionary. Character for your souls. Listen, you need to understand that all these missionaries that exist out in the world that are trying, that are vying for your ear, that are trying to sell you something, they all want something from you. They all are looking to get something from you. And you have, to, you have to be able to look at it and say, which of these people, which of the people who are coming at me have the character that makes their message resonate? Because if what I mostly want is, well, who, walk in, who walks into uh, an auto lot when you're buying a car and thinks, these people are after my best interest? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, a lawyer's office. <laughs> anywhere where somebody is selling something and thinks, I can trust this person. They're going to do what's best for me. They really care about me. None of us do. We all know what their motives are. So we go in, shield up, sort out. I'm not paying more than, you know, we're doing this whole thing, right? Maybe that's what we like online shopping. Not to deal with all that. Right? You, you have companies like CarMax where they'll say, look, no hacker. We're not going to make that deal because we know what you think of us. That if you have to go back and forth over this price, you don't trust us, so we'll just put the one price on there and whatever. No idea if they're good or not. This is not an endorsement. I'm not a missionary to them. <laughs> but we know what that's like. It's going to come at you. It's going to come at you constantly. The ideas of the world are going to come at you. What you need to do, part of what you need to do is say, what is the motivation? What is the motivation that this person has for telling me this? Is this somehow helping them? Is this somehow making them a bigger deal? Is this somehow, is it my money? What do they want from me? What are they getting out of this? And you need to look at that motivation as you look at the message. Both are important. Motivation, method, message, character. Let's read the third verse. This is the last verse we'll get to today. It says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. It did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now, the word he uses for exhortation here is, is interesting because depending on the context, this word actually has several different meanings in the Greek. But here in this spot, it's about call. It's about call. Okay? And so we, we start to see that he's talking about the gospel, the exhortation of the message of the gospel. We start to see that when he's talking about the gospel, that he's not just talking about something that he's saying, but he's saying this is, a, this is a calling. The good news that Jesus Christ came, became a man, right? Lowered himself, took on flesh, became a man, died, rose again from the dead. Defeated sin and death and hell and forgives and provides salvation and peace with God. That is not just a take it or leave it fact plan. Like, hey, do what you want to do with that. You know? That's not the kind of thing it is. It's the truth. And it demands not just a nod of attention. Or even intellectual understanding or belief. That's not even what it is. It's a calling that demands a response. That's what he's saying. This exhortation, this calling, we put the gospel out there, and it's not just noise. 
It demands a response from you. You've got to do one thing or the other with it. It's calling to repent, to be saved, to believe on Jesus Christ for eternal life now and in the future, forever. And to take part in the adventure that God has for you. To truly and sincerely follow Christ. To lead others to the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. That's the calling. That's the response that's being asked for. It's not just an idea to think about. Okay, Jesus Christ, you died, whatever. I'm thinking about that before I go to my next coffee appointment or flip to my next Netflix show. It's something not just to ponder lightly. It's something that calls for a response. It's something that, that, that threatens to turn your world right side up. To completely change your values and your priorities. And to grow and learn from the Prince of Peace and his work. All of that is contained in that word, exhortation there. That's a call, okay? Declaring the gospel, what they were doing in Thessalonica is not a small thing. Where they were just offering up a possibility. It's a calling, calling for reaction and response. And then he says three things about this, this calling, this thing that he said. Their message, essentially. There's three things he says about it, okay? He says the motives for our preaching, right? We're not from error. We're not in uncleanness. And we're not from deceit. And we're from deceit. Three things. They weren't an error. It's the truth. That's what he said. Not an error means it is the truth. Okay? It's true. What I'm saying is the real truth. Big T truth. There were those in the Roman and Greek world, just like there are now, just so you know, preaching that all truth is your truth. It's your truth. There's no real truth. There's only little t truth. Your own truth. Right? You have your truth, and I have my truth, and we just... You know, kind of do what we do. Did you think that we came up with that ourselves last week? That's been around forever. And was definitely around back then. Right? This logically flawed view of truth. This is old school. And it was around at the time, right? He's saying, ours is not from error, like that nonsense. It's not from error. It's not this ridiculous stuff. He's making the distinction again. Christ follower missionary, not in error. It's the truth. What we speak is true. What they speak is not. It's not false. It's not like these other philosophies that are preached to you in vain. It's true. And he says the gospel will not come from uncleanness. Uncleanness. Same look. Pretty simple. Our motives are pure. Our motives are pure. We're not after anything, anything other than the salvation and growth in Christ of the Thessalonians, who Paul knew that God loved so much. That's what he was after. Not anything for himself. Some think that this word uncleanness also has a connotation about sexual immorality, because that's usually how the word is used. And it is true that many of the preachers and teachers that would roll through Thessalonica and other places in the Greek and Roman world were peddling a message of sexual immorality. And a lot of times it was connected with religion. There was a worship of sex. Right? And so it's possible he's also making the distinction between Christianity and the sex religions. Right? The licentious sexuality that was being put out there. That they were worshiping. Right? But the gospel was different. It wasn't about taking place and taking part in unclean rituals and unclean pleasures. It was about Jesus Christ offering forgiveness for those very things. For the fact that so many had been involved in those very things. The gospel was different. There's a distinction. Now, lastly, the exhortation of the preaching of the gospel was not in deceit. It was not in deceit. This is so important. 
This is so important because the distinction between the Christ follower missionary and all the other missionaries largely comes down to this. Largely comes down to this. It's not in deceit. At this time in Thessalonica, the people would have been very familiar with some people called the sophists. The sophists made from sophistry. Okay? There were these people who went around. Okay? And they were trained in words and argument. Really, really well-trained speakers. Some of them writers also, but, but mostly speakers, right? And they were so persuasive. They could argue anything. They would literally have contests for money to find out who was the better arguer. We now call those lawsuits. But at the time, no, they had those two. They had those two. And it was often who was the better arguer, who would win, right? They, would, they wanted money. They wanted fame. They wanted to be the best. They wanted praise. Maybe some of them just wanted the satisfaction of the fact they were so good at speaking. They were so good at being persuasive. They could convince people to believe things that weren't true because they were so persuasive about the way they did it. And maybe they just got off on that. We don't know. All of their real motive. We can't see their heart. But, but what the people in the ancient world basically accused them of was being all about money and fame and power and winning and success. Show me the money. They were atheists, right? They talked about the Greek gods and all kinds of stuff. But they were atheists. They didn't believe in any of that. They didn't believe in anything. They, just, they were all about the Benjamins, man. All about the money. That's what they were about. And fame, they come in and they start doing their thing and they want to win these contests and be good at speaking because then the rich people would send their kids to them to teach them and pay them a lot of money to do it. So they could teach their kids how to talk out of both sides of their mouth and how to say whatever needed to be said to win an argument, whether it was true or not. They would, they would persuade often with like emotional arguments, even though they knew that the truth wasn't what they were saying. They would use these manipulative tools to persuade people. They loved the fame of being the best speaker. They were manipulators and they were deceivers. And Paul writes here that the Christ follower missionary is not like that. The Christ follower missionary does not deceive. He's making sure that these Thessalonian believers, these Thessalonian Christians, the church there understands that the Christ follower missionaries were not trying to trick them like the sophists would. As a preacher myself, I don't play around with trickery and manipulation. It's not that hard, especially with the internet these days, to find supposed facts, right? To find something that looks like facts or studies or surveys that would make an argument, a particular argument, really strong for me that I could come in and use. But I don't do that. I don't use those kind of facts. I could say all kinds of things all the time. And most of you don't have time to go and check everything I've said in 45 minutes. So I might get away with it. And maybe I can even manipulate people into believing things. But I don't. I don't. Okay? Attorneys, possibly some of them may do this type of thing. Marshal facts in a certain way so that their argument seems stronger than it really is. I don't know. It's just possible that people do that. Okay? People could try to manipulate, but that's not what the Christ follower missionary does. The Christ follower missionary ought not to be that way. It's deception. It's deception. I want you to think right now about every political ad you have ever seen ever in your life. Right? Every single one. And you've probably just gotten a lot of them if you still watch television with commercials recently. Okay? Every single one. Regardless of what the ad is for, regardless of what policy it's for or whatever. It seems like every time they take 
facts. They pull them out of context and they put them all together to make it seem like only an idiot would think anything other than what their ad says. It's so obvious by the time you get done watching that commercial that you should do whatever they said. But if it was that easy, why are we even having an election? Like, Mayor John Doe is so good and he's the best and Jesus actually came down and touched him on the head. But the other guy is running the drug cartel and kicking puppies. And you're like, why are we even having an election here? Right? That's manipulation. It's manipulation. It's taking things and turning them into something that they're not to try to get people to think things. And here's the thing. People don't like that. People don't like being manipulated. People don't like figuring out that you're trying to manipulate them. And when you make arguments that way, that's what they feel like. There's a reason why people don't like politicians, lawyers, car salesmen, televangelists. Right? What is it about all those people? In all those cases, you feel like these people are trying to manipulate the truth. They play fast and loose with the facts because they want something from you. And Paul is sitting here saying, that's not us. The Holy Spirit is, is through Paul saying, listen, that's not us. That's not who we are. That's not what we're about. We have no interest in that. I'm not saying that no, no believers or no pastors have ever been manipulative. There's laziness in research and there's even ends, means, ethics about the gospel, people will say, look, the ends justify the means. I'm going to, yes, I'm going to be somewhat manipulative and I'm not going to, and it's going to be a little bit dishonest in the way I do this, but if the end people get saved, isn't that a good thing? And my answer is no! It's not a good thing because people, you win people to what you win them with. And what that means is, is that if I preach a Jesus that's a little bit slightly different, right? The Jesus that says, you'll never have any trouble and things are going to be really nice and you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy, Right? And I preach that Jesus to you, and that's who saves you? Jesus didn't save you then. Because that's not Jesus. So if I'm manipulative, and I use tactics to try to sell, and what they call in the industry, puffy, right? If I try to puff up, or puff out, what Jesus is, because I think that's what you want to hear. Jesus, listen, this is the deal. He's going to pay all your bills. You're never going to get sick. You're going to get whatever you want. You get to go on vacation to wherever you want every year. Everyone's going to love you. You're also going to be thin and tall and, and you know, whatever. Then you're like, why is that way with Jesus? That sounds pretty sweet. But that's not what he's offering. He's offering you something way better than that. He's offering you eternal life. That sells itself. I don't need to pretend or play or give you some false gospel, some health and wealth nonsense to get you to believe in Jesus, but people do it. Why? Because they're manipulating you. Now, they may have a heart that says, I'm trying to do what's right for God. Right? The ends, people get saved, justify the means. But you're not saved if, if the Jesus that you're looking for is the real Jesus. If the Jesus I've told you about isn't the real Jesus, then how can you get saved in that? You need to know the truth. There's all kinds of ends, means, Stuff that goes on. All kinds of it. But that's not us. That's not the Christ follower missionary. The Christ follower missionary ought not to deceive. Ought not to deceive. And some people are still suspicious of Christ follower missionaries, of those who want to bring the gospel to them, especially if that Christ follower missionary I've noticed is a lawyer. Uh, they also, you know, go figure, I guess. But they think there's something inappropriate in it. For the Christ world. They must want something. They must be telling me about Jesus. They must be wanting me to go to church. They must be whatever because they want something from me. Let me, let, let me just set the record straight if you're worried about that. We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to trick you. If you're listening to this, 
online or you're here this morning, let me just say unequivocally, we are not trying to trick you. Okay? Other missionaries, other philosophies, I'll agree. They want something from you. They want your money or your praise or some of the things you have to give. That's what they want, but that's not what we want. The Christ follower missionary just wants you. Just wants you. We want your brotherhood or your sisterhood. We want your friendship. We want your salvation in Christ. We have no interest in your stuff. We have no interest in your stuff. Your salvation is what's important to us. What was important to Paul. The work that you do, the money that you give, that's for the Lord. You either love him because he first loved you or you don't. But please, don't accuse us of wanting your stuff. It's not true. It's not true. When we cheer, when we hear that new people in, in, in our ministries in Honduras or in the Philippines or in Alaska get saved, when we cheer about them, we cheer for new believers that have been baptized, we do it right outside the building here or whatever, it's not because we're pre-counting their tithes and offerings. It's not what that's about. We're not like, oh, new believer, more money. That's not what it's about. In fact, it's such a ridiculous thing to think because in most cases when new believers come and get baptized, it represents the need for sacrificial giving of time, money, and ministry effort by us, not by them. And yet, we're happy to do it. We lay down and die for it because we know how important it is and how amazing it was to us to get that amazing grace that Jesus offers. A new believer... It's like, it's like a newborn baby, right? And when there's a newborn baby, we think, how beautiful, how precious. We think about the relationship. We think about this, this baby becoming all that God has ever made her to be. And, and getting to be a part of that, getting to watch that. And, then, and they're so precious. They've got the little toes, and they're just so beautiful, and they're so special. And it's a thing that's pure and good. We're not thinking, I can't wait until she's old enough to take out the trash. So I don't have to anymore. <laughs> And hopefully she'll get a good job and take care of me. And my dad did say that kind of stuff to me all the time. I got him when he became a pastor. So. Um, that's not how we are. That's not how we are. A new baby, a newborn baby in Christ. It's such a beautiful thing. And it has nothing to do with what that baby. What can a baby do for you? Right? You're cleaning their poop up. And that's also what it's like with new believers. Usually not literally, although I can tell you a story I'm not going to tell. Okay. I'll ask you later. Um, we are not trying to trick you. When you come out of the baptismal, that we just put you under the water and you've done this thing to represent and, 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 and correspond with the death, real resurrection of Christ and say to everybody, I'm a Christ follower, we don't get out and hug you and start patting, patting with you for your wallet. Okay? You have to change the bathroom. The elders go in there and clean the bottle of rice. We don't do that. We don't care about that. We're not thinking about that. It's not happening. It's not happening. We, we love you. We love you. We want you for you. That's it. We want you for you. We don't want your stuff. We just want all of you. We want relationship. We're not trying to trick you. Not for your money. We're not looking for what you can do for us. We're looking for what we can do for you. We want to serve you. We know that Jesus loves you. That he looks at you like that baby that we were just talking about. And all the potential that you have. And all that you can become in him. And we want to see that. We have nothing more than to see that for you. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're not, it's not about deceit. Our hearts are, are overflowing with love for 
you. There's a reason why we do what we do. There's a reason why our exhortation, why the gospel that demands, demands a response was given to you. Because we love you. We love you. We're different. We're different than the other missionaries in your world. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were different. John Chow, who died a week ago or so, he showed the, the motives of a Christ follower missionary. What, what was exactly those people had were going to give him? What was he going to be able to get from that? He goes over and deceives and manipulates them. What's he going to get? What's he going to get? No. He loved them so much that he just wanted to show them the beauty and the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just wanted just the idea that we will be in heaven around Christ's throne with every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that those people would have been standing there, and John would have been there with them going, yes! Their eternal souls are saved. That's all they cared about. He was willing to die for there was no malice. There was no, he wasn't looking for money. He didn't have any money. He didn't want their stuff. He just wanted to be with them. He just wanted to tell them about Jesus because he knows how much Jesus loved them. This is the heart of the Christ follower missionary. And this needs to be the heart of every one of us who serves Christ. We're going to live like Paul and Silas and Timothy did with the Thessalonians, preaching the gospel in the boldness of God, in truth, in purity, in honesty. And watch what the Lord will do. What is the distinction between you as a Christ follower missionary and all the other missionaries in this world? What's the difference? Do we look like Paul and Silas and Timothy? We need to. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.